Good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? All right, that's nice and alive and awake. Uh, my name is Eric. I get to be the pastor here. We just want to say welcome. We're glad that you are here today. And uh, as a pastor, there are certain questions you get asked a lot. And when people ask me these certain questions, it's always one-on-one. They never round other people. It's like they want to, you know, find me and it's like, hey, Eric, can I ask you a question? And their voice kind of gets hushed and they kind of look around, make sure no one's looking. And uh, w- when that happens, I know they're going to ask about one of three things. They're either going to ask about money or sex or this other thing we're going to talk about today. And so they'll try to find me and kind of uh, quietly say, hey, can I ask you a question? I'm like, sure, what? I'm like, Eric, do you, do you ever doubt? And what I do every time is I look him right in the eye and say, I never doubt. Only sinners doubt. (laughs) No, of course, I don't say that. That would be terrible. Uh, I have doubts. Everyone has doubts. Everyone has doubts. And I think we go through times in our life when we have these doubts. And I think doubts usually fall into one of two buckets. Number one is we wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth it? When we're following the way of Jesus and and living a life of irrational generosity and we give away our time and our talents and our treasure and we're following the way of forgiveness instead of getting revenge and sometimes we think, is it all worth it? Second thing is sometimes I think we have doubts when we ask, is it true? Is it true? Did Jesus really live? Did God really create all of this? And so how do we respond? Earth Day was yesterday. Sometimes it's good to prune. Sometimes it's good to plant. But we ask, is it worth it? We ask, is it true? Is it worth it? Is it true? And yes, I have doubts, but I've discovered that I most often have doubts when I lose sight of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. When I lose sight of the resurrection, because when someone predicts their own death and resurrection and then pulls it off, I want to be on that guy's team. I want to be with Jesus because he predicted his death. He predicted that he would rise again, and he did. I want to be with him. And that's why first century followers of Jesus, first century doubters and fearful followers of Jesus were able to go from a place filled with doubt and uncertainty to a place where they could be bold for Jesus. Because not only did Jesus die on the cross for our sins, but he rose again from the grave. Amen? See, we all have doubts at some point in our life. And most of us have doubts at many points in our life. But here's the good news for us, is that we're not alone in our doubts. We're not alone in our doubts. If you're asking those questions, is it worth it? Is it true? You aren't alone. Here's the truth I want you to know is that 100% of Jesus' early followers had doubts. 100% of them. In fact, one of his followers even got a nickname. Does any of you guys know who I'm talking about? Doubting Thomas. Yeah, poor Doubting Thomas. Uh, I did a paper on Thomas in college, and I think he gets a bad rap. But we call him Doubting Thomas. And he got this nickname not at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he first follows Jesus. So you might be like, oh, cut him some slack. He's just getting to know Jesus. No, it's towards the end of his time with Jesus that he gets this nickname, Doubting Thomas. See, write this down. Is that what's good news for us is that Jesus doesn't toss you out if you doubt. Just because you have doubts doesn't mean Jesus tosses you out and says, "Ah, get out of here. Jesus doesn't toss you out if you doubt. 
You can have questions. You can have doubts and still be a follower of Jesus. At the same time, you can have questions. You can wonder, how does this all work as a follower of Jesus? You don't have to have your doubts all worked out. I've been a pastor for a number of years now. I've been a follower of Christ uh, for, for a couple of decades now. And there are things I don't understand. I don't understand when it comes to salvation, what does it mean that God predestines us and then he calls us, but then we have to respond. And then justification, is that a legal term? Is it, how does that work exactly? And sanctification, the process of becoming like Christ. See, you don't have to be able to explain everything to believe it. You don't have to fully understand it all to believe it. Uh, later today, uh, I'm getting on an airplane with, with Matt and Nate and Justin. We're heading to a conference in Florida. And I don't have to be able to understand Bernoulli's uh, principle of, of, of lift and thrust and, and acceleration and how that all works to get the airplane in the air to believe that that airplane's going to get us where we're supposed to be. There are things when it comes to God, when it comes to his word, that we can't explain, or if you still have questions on how did this all work, that's okay. See, God is so much bigger than we can ever fully comprehend or understand. And so today, if you're at a place of, of doubts and questions, and you're wondering, that's okay. Because Jesus welcomes doubters. Jesus welcomes doubters. Jesus welcomes people with questions and uncertainties, and I'm not sure. See, the men and women who followed Jesus, they had doubts right up until the resurrection. That when Jesus was arrested, they all ran away. And only John, one of his closest friends, was there at the cross. And at Jesus' funeral, not even John was there. None of Jesus' closest friends were at there at his funeral. And on Sunday morning of the resurrection, no one was at the tomb counting down. All right, we're here waiting for the resurrection. They had doubts. They're like, man, I thought he was the one. I guess not. Right up until the moment of the resurrection. And here's why that's good news for us. Here's why. It's because wherever you are in your spiritual journey, your faith is growing. But you have questions. And the great news is that you can follow Jesus without having all your doubts worked out. While still having some questions about how God works and how can he love me and how can he do this. You can still follow Jesus. You don't have to have all your doubt worked out. Frederick Buechner, a Christian writer and author, uh, says this. If you don't have doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. I, I love that quote. That it's okay to ask questions of, Jesus, I don't understand. How could you allow this to happen? I know there are people in our church where you have doubts when the spouse of, of a close friend dies and you're like, I don't understand. I, I have doubts about how this could happen. When you, you read the news of Syria and what's going on around the world and we have doubts about, God, I, I doubt, are, are you good? And if you're good, then are you all powerful? And are you really present here with us? But we can be followers of Jesus and still have these questions, still wrestle, still wonder. Jesus says, it's okay. See, God's big enough for our questions. God's big enough for our doubts. And wherever you are on that journey, Jesus says, you are welcome. Because it's through our doubts that faith is built. 
It's when we go through those seasons of uncertainty, when we, our shepherd leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and we look around and we're like, uh, I'm doubting right now that you're with me because I don't feel like it. But my faith is going to be built through this, and I'm going to trust you. Even though I have doubts, even though I have uncertainties, and even though I'm wondering if this is really true. Doubt is a sign that you are thinking, not just blindly accepting it. See, I was a youth pastor for many years working with teenagers, and a lot of parents start to kind of freak out when their middle schooler or high school student starts asking questions about the Bible and how do we know this to be true and what do you mean? Are we sure God is the real one true God? And parents will sometimes say, what did I do wrong? And most of the time it's nothing, it's good. It's a sign that your, your kid is starting to think for themselves, and as scary as it is for them to have doubts and questions, it's good. We need to wrestle with this and say, ah, I'm not just going to believe it because I've been told it. I'm going to wrestle with it myself, and, and that's how our faith is built in Jesus. So here's what we know. Number one, Jesus doesn't toss you out if you doubt. Jesus doesn't say, oh, if you have some doubts, get out of here. He doesn't toss you out if you doubt. Number two, you don't have to have your doubt all worked out to be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to have your doubt all worked out. Number three, it's through doubt that faith is built. It's through uncertainty that we find ourselves trusting in Jesus. See, if we can see everything and understand everything and, and, and uh, life is perfect, there's no need for faith. It's through doubt and uncertainty that our faith is built. And this morning, we're going to look at the life of one of the most faith-filled men in the Bible. And even he had doubts about Jesus. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that Jesus welcomes doubters. Would you join me in prayer? And then we're going to dive into today's word. Jesus, I thank you that you welcome doubters and you welcome us to ask questions and to share our, our fears and our uncertainties with you. And in spite of times of, of wondering and doubting and questioning, you welcome us. So Lord, I pray that this morning we'd be encouraged, that our hearts would be illuminated by your truth. Thank you. Amen. Uh, we're going to look at the life this morning of someone known as John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And sometimes maybe we could think, oh, he was the first Baptist. And he started First Baptist Church and the Second Baptist Church. No, he baptized people. So I like to call him John the Baptizer because that's a little better title than John the Baptist. Uh, but so we're going to talk about John the Baptizer this morning. And his family has a rather extraordinary story. We talked a little bit about his kind of family last December as we started our journey through the book of Luke. His dad's name is Zechariah, and he was a small uh, time priest in a tiny little town, kind of like today, maybe like uh, a bivocational pastor working a second job in a small little town. And John's mom's name was Elizabeth, an amazing faith-filled woman who loved God, who loved her husband. And uh, they, they served God faithfully in this simple, humble, hardworking couple. They loved God. They loved each other. They loved their ministry, of what they were doing. But what they really, really wanted was a child. They wanted to bless a little baby, a, a child with, with their love and their knowledge and to raise knowing God. And they prayed. They prayed for a baby. And then month after month, as it wasn't happening, they kept praying and they kept trusting. And then months turned into years and years, and 
Elizabeth saw every other woman in their town get pregnant. And the little Snickers people would say, ha, look, she's obviously done something wrong. She's not as holy as she thought. And for years and years they waited. But they trusted through all that. Maybe today you're in a season of waiting and waiting. That's where Zechariah and Elizabeth were, as they waited and waited for that baby. And then one day, this amazing story where an angel shows up to Zechariah and says, you're going to be a dad. Your wife is going to have a baby. And it's amazing. And God opens up her womb and Elizabeth shares this amazing prayer that God has taken away my shame and, and, my, uh, uh, and, and made me, uh, lifted me up. And at the same time that she's miraculously uh, pregnant, Elizabeth's cousin, young virgin Mary, gets pregnant too. And these two cousins, these two relatives are pregnant together. And I think it's so special. Uh, maybe, ladies, if you've been pregnant at the same time as your sister or a close friend, there's something special about that. And I just picture these two cousins rejoicing in the fact that they were both um, carrying these boys. And these boys would grow up to, look, to know God and love God. And so John and Jesus were these boy cousins that most likely knew each other and played together and roughhoused together. John and Jesus and John and Jesus, these cousins. And then as they grew up, one day, John felt called into the ministry. And he became this powerful, amazing preacher. And what's even more amazing is that when John comes on the scene, he comes as a prophet of God speaking for God. And it had been 400 years since God had sent a prophet to speak for him. 400 years. For frame of reference, the United States of America isn't even 400 years old yet. So all of our history, that's you could fit in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the time of silence. That's how long, even longer than that, the people of God have been waiting for someone, a prophet to come. And then John, this prophet, finally, he comes and he's preaching and he's preparing the way for the Messiah and this bold prophet of God. Now, let's be a little honest about John, though, because I love John. He's bold and he's great, but he's a little odd. Okay, that's just who John is. He's kind of, he's just a little strange. Um, you know, he's that odd cousin. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, everyone has that cousin who's just a little odd, a little off. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're probably the odd cousin, just saying. But he's kind of an odd kid because he lived out in the woods. He, his clothes were made of camel hair. He ate a steady diet of bugs and honey, and his job was yelling at people. That's, that's who John was. Like, he's a little eccentric. He would have made a really great, like, lead singer or front man for an indie rock band. That's John. Like, that's who he is, you know? But he starts this ministry of preaching and teaching out in the middle of nowhere, and people flock to John, and it's amazing. And I have to think, like, John must have been a really, really good preacher because people come out to the middle of nowhere where there's, like, no amenities out there to listen to John preach. Like, we have a hard enough time getting people to say, hey, come check out church in an elementary school, and we have indoor plumbing and free Starbucks coffee, all right? And John didn't have any of that, and people flocked out to hear him preach, so he must have been a good preacher. And he's sharing the news of God, and people are repenting of their sin, and he's baptizing them, and he's preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about how he actually baptized Jesus. 
And so we want to be like Jesus, and so we want to get baptized. And so he's doing all this great work for God. And let's check in a little bit on, on kind of his story. Luke 3, we're going to go back a couple chapters. Luke 3, verse 18 says, So with many other exhortations, he, John the Baptist, preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Basically what happened is Herod, he's the puppet king over uh, Israel while Rome, the empire, is in charge. Well, Herod had a crush on his brother's wife and was like, you know what? I'm going to take my brother's wife and marry her. And uh, John's like, you know what? You can't do that. That's not a good idea to steal your brother's wife. Like basic decency here, right? And, and would preach against Herod. And Herod finally got tired of it that he'd locked up John and John's in prison. And so for a couple chapters now, John has been sitting in prison. And as we've talked the last couple of weeks about the amazing things that Jesus has done, that he's healed the blind, that he's reached out and touched the untouchables by stretching out his hand to the leper who hadn't been touched in years and years, and, and he's welcoming outsiders in, and all these amazing things, John is sitting in a prison cell waiting for them to behead him. And he keeps hearing all this news of Jesus and the amazing things Jesus is doing. He's sitting there, and he's thinking... I know why I'm here. I'm here to prepare the way for this Messiah who's going to come. And I'm pretty sure the Messiah is going to usher in this new kingdom. And I even heard Jesus say, I've come to liberate the captives and set them free. So why am I still sitting in a prison cell? This is, I'm pretty sure this is why Jesus is here, is to set the captives free and to set up this new kingdom. And, and John's doubts begin to grow as he's waiting in prison. Sometimes we're in a season of doubt. And when Jesus isn't acting the way we think he should act, we can start to doubt. We can start to question. See, here's the situation with John. Is his parents were devout. He learned the Bible growing up. They taught him the Old Testament scriptures. He learned to pray and walk with God at a young age. He's part of a great ministry family. And then becomes this powerful preacher. And God works through him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all who are coming to him to hear him talk. And yet, the guy with all the answers, who's preaching, has questions. He still has questions, and he still has doubts. And he's not embarrassed about that. And we shouldn't either. When we have questions, don't be embarrassed to bring those to Jesus. You don't have to have your doubt all worked out to follow Jesus. Well, let's, let's check in now as we've been working our way through the book of Luke. Uh, we find ourselves in chapter 7. Uh, verse 18 and 19. Uh, we talked just a couple weeks ago how Jesus even raised someone from the dead and he's been healing people and doing these amazing works while John's been sitting in prison hearing about this. Verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, he's sitting in prison, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, the one we've been waiting for, the Messiah? Or should we look for another? John, we saw a couple weeks ago, he's baptizing people and he's like, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. I'm here to prepare a way for him. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And now he's been sitting in prison for a while and Jesus isn't doing exactly what he thought he was going to do. And, and he's got some doubts. 
He's like, you know, I, I was pretty certain that you're that one, the Lamb of God, but now I'm wondering, are you the Messiah? Or should we expect someone else? Now, how many of you, like worshiping your cousin as God would be hard enough? Like that'd be tough. Let alone sitting in prison and hearing about all these amazing things. And you start to have some doubts. And so he says to his close friends, go, go find my cousin Jesus and ask him, are you the Messiah we've been waiting for? Or someone else coming? Because if someone else is coming, I'm going to try to keep my head on my body and wait for that person. He's, he's in prison. He's clearly puzzled. Jesus isn't doing what he expected because he thought this Messiah was going to set up some new political kingdom and liberate all the prisoners. Verse 20. And when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one, Jesus? Because we're not so sure right now. In that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John, my cousin, what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, when you first read that, you're like, what a strange thing to say. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me? What does he mean by that? Why would you be offended by all these good deeds? When you really dive in, and we don't do this much, like what does the Greek word say, but uh, the Greek word there literally means a stumbling block. It's something that you trip over and you fall over. See, Jesus doesn't fit into our boxes. I love how C.S. Lewis says this in the Chronicles of Narnia when he's talking about Aslan, who's a type of Christ. He says, he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. He doesn't do tricks for us. And Jesus is saying, let go of your ideas and what you think I should do and what you think I should be like. He says, instead, let go of your expectations and instead look at the evidence. Let go of your expectations on what you think Jesus should do and how he should act. And instead, look at the evidence. See, their expectations were that this Messiah would come and set up a new political kingdom and he'd kick out the Romans and he'd free the prisoners and life would be great for them and they'd be a, the shining city on a hill once again even though they failed to do it over and over and over and over again throughout their Old Testament history. Instead, the kingdom of God that Jesus is setting up is one that people hear good news and people's lives are being tra changed and transformed. And people are being healed and delivered. Jesus is saying, let go of your expectations. Instead, look at the evidence of what I am doing. I'm changing hearts. I'm changing lives. My kingdom is not one that you can see. That's a political kingdom. The kingdom of God is freedom. Not from a prison cell, but freedom from your bondage and your addictions and your diseases and your shame and your guilt and your anxiety. He says, go tell John what's going on. This is the kingdom I'm building. Not some political kingdom that you thought. Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Why did you go see John in the first place? A reed shaken by the wind? Now, oftentimes when Jesus says stuff, 
we can read it and be like, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> Amen? Anyone else like that? Or am I the only one? Okay. Like, what does he mean? Uh, part of that is because we're 2,000 years removed from the context of some things that Jesus says. And so we got to dive in a little deeper. And, uh, and so I did that. And, and there's some things I found out. I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. In the ancient world, um, coins were the only mass medium they had. There wasn't an the internet. They didn't have newspapers. They didn't have magazines. They didn't have books. They didn't have art galleries. In fact, the Jewish people were even taught not to have any graven images. That was just against kind of the way they did things. So if you wanted to get a message across to people in an artistic way, really the only way you had was through coins. And so you'd put your message on those coins. Uh, you'd see that Caesars would do this. They, they'd use their propaganda on coins. Uh, many of the early phrases that the, the, the early church talks about Jesus as the Prince of Peace, uh, that's like phrases that Caesar used about himself on coins. And so it's very subversive the way the New Testament is written. Um, but Herod, who's the puppet king of the Jewish people who was mad at John the Baptist, when he chose the symbols for his coins a few years before the time of Jesus' public ministry, he chose a typical Galilean reed. You can see it there, on, on, over there. It's, it's, it's a reed. And when you'd go to the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did a lot of his ministry, there'd be reeds along the bank. And a reed kind of said, hey, I'm one of you. I'm one of the people. I'm a commoner among you. It symbolizes peace and prosperity and all this stuff. And so Herod picked that purposely as kind of his symbol. Um, it'd be like, you know, Trump's red hats or, you know, an eagle for, you know, the symbol for America, all these things. They have these symbols that represents it. And Herod's was a reed. And so when Jesus says, what did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaking in the wind. The crowds would have heard the message of, would you go out there looking for a new king, a new political leader? He says, what did you go out there to see? A man dressed in soft clothing and royal garments? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. He says, did you go out to find a new king? Did you think John was going to be this political leader who's going to come in and, and usher in a new political age? He's saying, no, that's not who John is. Verse 26, what then did you go out to see if he's not some kind of new king and political leader? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, he quotes Isaiah, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. See, as the people of God waited for the Messiah, they knew there's going to be this prophet that would come who'd be the messenger who'd prepare the way for the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, John is that messenger. I'm the Messiah. He's the one who came to prepare the way for me. And of all the people ever born, up until this moment, John is the greatest. That's high praise coming from Jesus. Like we thought about who are the greatest people to ever live. You know, maybe Julius Caesar, you know, uh, uh, you know um, uh, Alexander the Great, you know, as an Apple fanboy like Matt, maybe Steve Jobs, you know, maybe, I don't know, the barista who invented the uh, unicorn frappuccino. You'd be like, uh, but no, Jesus says, John the Baptist, of all those who have ever come before, is the greatest to be born. And for all of John's greatness, for all of his faith, for being the prophet to prepare the way, John still has doubts. He's still wondering, Jesus, are, are you the one? Because I'm not so sure right now sitting in a prison cell, waiting for them to chop off my head. See, Jesus doesn't toss you out if you doubt. Jesus goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God, this new kingdom that I'm ushering in, not a political one, 
is greater than he. See, for all of John's greatness, this child born of old parents belongs to the old age. And Jesus, the child of the young virgin, belongs to the new way. And Jesus says, those who are in my kingdom, in this new kingdom of God that is coming, will be greater than even John. And then Jesus goes on and he compares the crowds, which is always a great thing, to little children. Verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. You know, kids do this. They're like, you didn't do what I wanted you to do, mom. Why did you do this? Why didn't you play with me? That's kind of what he's saying. Verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he is a demon. The son of man, that's Jesus' favorite uh, title for himself. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. All right, here's another one. Like, what in the world is Jesus saying? Why all this talk of eating and drinking and who you're with? Like, it'd be so easy to just kind of blow past this. But I can't stress too much the importance in this culture of table fellowship in the early church, in first century culture. It was huge. See, we have to keep in mind the Jewish people are living in a country that's been conquered by Rome. An empire, the Roman Empire, an empire always wants people to be the same. And he wants, they want it to be that we're all believing the same thing, doing the same thing, and that's, that's what empire does. It's, it believes that peace can only come by squashing down all other thoughts and opinions, and you have to agree with me, that's what empire does. And so the Jewish people, to hold on to their identity and make them unique, they held on a couple of things. One, their Sabbath observance. They didn't do anything from sundown Friday till um, sundown on Saturday. And then their table fellowship. What they ate, their certain dietary restrictions were very important. And who they ate with was very important to their identity. Because that set the boundaries of who was in and who was out. What you ate and who you ate with were the markers for who was in and who was out. Luke, our author, shares a story in his second volume, the book of Acts, that Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, gets this vision from God to go to this Gentile's house in, in, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius. And up until this time, the church had just reached out to the Jewish people, and they're kind of like half-breed cousins of the Samaritans. No one had really gone to the Gentiles yet. So Peter, after a very clear word from God, goes to Cornelius' house, a non-Jewish home. And when he comes back, he gets called to the carpet by these religious leaders in Jerusalem who are a part of the church. Now, do you think those religious leaders got all upset that Peter preached the good news of the gospel to the outsiders? No, they didn't really care about that. Do you think they even cared that Peter baptized all these people who believed in Jesus and became followers of Jesus. They weren't Jewish people, but they're outsiders and they're in, they're baptized and they're part of the community. No, they didn't really care about that. They said, how could you eat with these people? How could you eat with them? Why was that such a big deal? How could you eat with these people? See, Peter, by eating with Gentiles, had radically redefined the identity of the early church. He changed the boundaries of who was in and who was out. 
And so when the critics of John the Baptist say that he doesn't eat with anyone, they're saying, you know what, John, you know, ultimately he doesn't really matter because he's removed himself from covenant fellowship of eating with other people. He's just kind of an outsider. He's a loner, just a crazy evangelist out there. And Jesus, whoa, you're even worse because Jesus, you eat with anyone. You eat with sinners and tax collectors, even worse. You eat with anyone. You have violated the sacred distinctions of who's in and who's out. Jesus, one of the things we love about Jesus is he invites everyone to the table. Jesus invites doubters. He invites people who don't have things all worked out. He invites outsiders to come to his table of fellowship. And he just says, follow me. Jesus welcomes doubters. Jesus welcomes outsiders. Jesus just welcomes. And next week we're going to look at a story. Luke shares this and then he's like, I'm going to illustrate this with a story of Jesus actually at a table with an outsider and forgives the sinful woman and welcomes her into the family of God. And it's amazing. But people today still judge Jesus by their expectations of what they think he should do and what he should be like. Instead of looking to the evidence of what really happened. It's so easy to just not dive into the Gospels and read who Jesus really is. And just kind of like, well, I heard these stories in Sunday school and I'm just going to dismiss them. You know, he, he, was just a, he was just a good teacher who said some nice things about, you know, you know loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and all that stuff. No, Jesus wasn't just some nice guy skipping through the fields, saying some nice sayings and we can say, ah, some good teaching. Jesus was radically subversive by changing the religious establishment and redefining who was in and who was out. Because of that, that was hugely upsetting to the establishment. And because Jesus radically redefines who's in, who's out, who's allowed to come and be a part of the family of God, that is why they killed him. He was coming against empire and against the establishment and the people who had great power. Because he's saying, you know what? These old boundaries aren't the way it is anymore. You don't have to be born into a certain family. You don't have to do these certain things. You don't have to have a certain pedigree. I'm welcoming all into the family of God. And that's why they killed him. Not just because he was some good teacher. He died on the cross, and he rose again. And Jesus says, you are welcome. And Jesus would ask each one of us to let go of our expectations of who we think Jesus is and what we think he should do, and instead examine the evidence. What did he really do? Who did he really care for? Who did Jesus dine with? Who did Jesus spend time with? Was it the powerful and the elite and building, you know, did Jesus spend all this time building an awesome brand for himself on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, uh, you know doing all this stuff? No. Jesus spent time with outsiders and the people without power. And Jesus says, let go of your expectations of what you think I should be like and what you think I should do. Jesus shatters our expectations, but he's the only way into the kingdom of God. And the most amazing, the most beautiful thing to me 
is that these doubters who followed Jesus, who asked all these questions, who wondered, who ran away when Jesus was arrested, who most of them, all but one, weren't there at the cross, none of them there at the funeral, just a few months later, go back to the same city and say, hey, all of you, you killed Jesus, but he's the son of God and you need to repent and follow him. How does that happen? The doubters became the announcers, and that is a beautiful thing. Those who doubted and wondered and weren't sure and ran away became the announcers of this good news of the kingdom of God, that Jesus came to set the captives free, to heal, to restore, to invite outsiders in. And Jesus wants us, the doubters, the imperfect, the broken, to be the announcers of the kingdom of God. Jesus invites us to share the good news of who he is and what he has come to do. See, we want Mosaic to be a safe place where people can ask questions. A safe place where if you have doubts, if you are wondering, that you can get into a small group with other people and do life together and say, I'm struggling with this. I don't understand how this works. And if you're at a place where you really have pressing concerns and questions, we want to invite you to to do life with someone. And and we have some people doing this. It's discipleship, which is meeting with someone on a regular basis, on a one-on-one basis of saying, I got questions. Let's sit down. And I'm new to this whole faith thing. And let's walk through the Gospels and and learn who Jesus is and, and look at the evidence. What did he really do? Not just my expectations of what I think Jesus is like. Jesus welcomes doubters. And he says, but don't just have your doubts, but come together in community as we help each other grow in our faith, as we help each other work through our doubts and our uncertainties to follow Jesus. Would you stand with me? I want you to know that Mosaic is a safe place wherever you are on your journey, whether you've been following God for decades or this is all new. And even this morning, maybe you're just wondering. Maybe you are filled with anxiety and doubts and questions. She says, that's okay. You are welcome at the table. You're welcome to come and bring those questions to trust Jesus even through that, even when you have doubts and even when you have questions and you're not sure what to do, to trust Jesus, to follow him. I'm going to invite you just to close your eyes and to bow your head. And if you feel comfortable, uh, sometimes I like to just put my hands out and my sides just open as a posture of openness. And you don't need to repeat this with me, but I, I just want to encourage you to let this be your prayer as you agree with me. Jesus, we thank you that you welcome doubters and outsiders and people with questions and people who don't have everything figured out or all together. You welcome us to your table of fellowship. Jesus, I pray that you would help me in my faith 
to help my faith to grow. In spite of questions and uncertainties and, and not understanding how you work and, and, and all your purposes in this world, but God, in spite of that, I would trust you. And God, we pray that as a church, the doubters, the uncertain, the broken, the imperfect, God, we would be the announcers of your kingdom, of your good news. God, that we would invite outsiders to come feel welcome. God, that people with doubts can get their questions answered and work through in community to find faith in you and faith to grow. God, that when we're weak, we'd be strong with each other, that we lean on you, God. God, that we would just announce that people can find freedom, freedom from their anxiety and worries, freedom from their doubts, freedom from their addictions, their secret fears. God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would just come in among us would live inside of us, that we would be open to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you shatter our expectations. That you come not as a political leader, but as one bringing life and hope and truth here today, now. Let's just take a minute. And uh, as the band just plays quietly, we'll just, in this attitude of, of openness, just we'll pause before we close our service and just say, Jesus, what is it that you want me to receive from you? Holy Spirit, fill my mind with your truth. Purify my heart. Let me be filled with your love, your peace right now. just pause and reflect and be open to what God wants to do in us right now. Jesus, I pray that as we sit and we wait, as John waited in prison, that we would not lose heart, that in spite of our doubts, we would trust you. We would trust that you are the one we've been waiting for. We would trust that you are the one who can heal and restore and renew. That you are here with us now. Help us to trust you. Help us to know it's okay to not have everything figured out. But to follow you, to trust you, to be announcers of your good news. To invite others to your table to find fellowship with you. Thank you, Jesus.
before we leave and close with our last song, I just want to invite you that um, if today you are going through something or whether it's what you perceive to be small or large, there is power in asking someone to pray with you, to have a hand on your shoulder, to share your need, your request with someone. And I encourage you to find me, Pastor Nate, who's in the room, I think, somewhere, and, uh, or someone in our prayer team up front or in the back. And there's just something powerful about asking someone to pray with you. Don't leave if you need prayer today without finding someone to pray for you.